Well, today we join with Christians all over the world in celebrating the greatest and the most consequential event in the history of mankind, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's how the gospel writer Matthew describes it in the gospel that bears his name. In chapter 28, verses 1 through 7, we read this. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And then the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. I'm aware that on this Resurrection Sunday, we have people here today who believe every single word that I just read. And we probably have some people here today who want to believe every single word that I just read, but they are struggling to do so. And then we probably have some folks here today who do not believe what I just read at all. Most of us here today, the truth is, most of us here today are probably in the first group. We believe every word that we just read. And so for us, today is a great day of celebration. If you're in that second group and you want to believe, but you're struggling to believe, or if you're in that third group and you just don't believe it at all, I've just got to be honest with you about something today. The rest of us have been praying for you. And it is our hope that today you are going to come to believe that the testimony of Matthew chapter 28 is true. You see, it is reasonable to believe in the resurrection. Oftentimes people are afraid it's, this is not a reasonable thing to believe, but it is reasonable to believe in the resurrection. In fact, uh, LifeWay Research tells us that somewhere around 66% of Americans claim to believe in the resurrection. That's a lot of people. Of course, that means that 33% don't believe, and that's a lot of people too. In the United States, that's 109 million people. I think for most who struggle to believe or don't believe at all, it's largely because someone rising from the dead is so far outside of our experience that it's really difficult to set aside our skepticism and believe that it could really be possible. Everything in our experience tells us that death is final. And so it seems very fairy ish to think that someone could come back from the dead. It seems impossible. It seems unreasonable to think that it could really happen. And we don't want to be unreasonable people. And so many adopt a fence-sitting position. And others just conclude that it, it just didn't happen. It couldn't have happened. The LifeWay study said that 14% of Americans are in the uh, fence-sitting group, and then 20% percent 
say it could not have happened. They do not believe at all. But belief in the resurrection is entirely reasonable, and we can only scratch the surface today, but I just want to give a, a few reasons why. There are many more, but I just want to give a few today. First of all, if you believe in God, if you believe there is a God, then believing in a miracle like the resurrection is not difficult at all. It's just not. I mean, if there is a God, then it is perfectly reasonable to believe that that God, the creator of life, would have the power to overcome death. And Pew Research tells us that 80% of Americans either believe in the God of the Bible or in a higher power of some kind. And so uh, what that tells us is that a good number of people who believe in God are still skeptical about the resurrection. But again, if there is a God who created everything that is, if there is a God who is responsible for everything we see, who spoke life into existence, then it's perfectly reasonable to believe that he could overcome death. But here's the primary reason the belief in the resurrection is reasonable. Because by any objective analysis, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is factual. Belief in the resurrection is reasonable because the resurrection of Christ is factually true. There were eyewitnesses, many of them, to the resurrected Jesus. And, and here is something really important to note. Those eyewitnesses were themselves initially skeptical, and they only came to believe because they could not deny what they saw with their own eyes and what, who, they touched with their own hands. Critics say that the disciples of Jesus hatched an elaborate plot to steal the body of Jesus so that they could run around the Roman Empire proclaiming that he had risen from the dead, but it's a preposterous charge because the mood of the disciples after Jesus' crucifixion was that they were completely demoralized. In fact, they were in hiding. They were afraid. Their world had been rocked. They thought it was all over. They only grasped the teaching of Jesus about his resurrection after he had risen. Before the resurrection, they had not understood his teaching. They were a discouraged and a demoralized group. They were not plotting an elaborate hoax because they had not even grasped what Jesus had said was going to happen. Here's the deal. They had no expectation of the resurrection. They only came to believe it and then went around the Roman Empire proclaiming it because... Once they encountered the resurrected Jesus, they could not deny what they had seen, who they had touched. They could not deny that they had spoken with the risen Jesus. In fact, one of the most famous believers in Jesus of all time, one of the most famous believers in the resurrection of all time, is a man that we forever label Doubting Thomas. And why is he called Doubting Thomas? It is because he refused to believe in the resurrection. He refused to believe until 
he could touch Jesus. But once he had encountered the risen Christ, once he had actually touched his hands, he could no longer doubt or deny the truth. You realize that almost all of the disciples eventually died martyrs' deaths for proclaiming that Jesus Christ was risen and was Lord. Now let me ask you a question. Be honest with yourself. Would you die for something you knew was a lie? I can answer for myself, I would not. I might stick with it a long way, but when it's to the point of death, I'm squealing. I, I, I'm telling the whole story. No, it's not true. I, I don't want to die. It's not true. You, you wouldn't die for something that you knew to be a lie. They were willing to die because they knew the resurrection was true and they could not deny what they knew was true. They were eyewitnesses. They knew what they saw. They knew it. Nothing else but that the resurrection is factually true can account for why devout Jewish men and women who had faithfully kept a seventh-day Sabbath all of their lives suddenly started worshiping on the first day of the week, Sunday. Something dramatic had to happen to make that change. What happened is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. There's no other realistic explanation for why the body of Jesus was never found than that he actually did rise from the grave and he actually did ascend into heaven as the scriptures tell us. You see, both the Roman and the Jewish authorities had great incentive to disprove the growing Christian movement that was built on the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead and was Lord. All that would have had to happen for Christianity to be crushed in its infancy. And if this had happened, we would not be sitting here today talking about Jesus. All that would have had to happen is for the dead body of Jesus to be drugged through the streets of Jerusalem. Yet with great incentive to crush the growing Christian movement, no dead body was ever found because there was not a dead body because Jesus has risen indeed. Now friends, these are just a few reasons that belief in the resurrection is reasonable because it is factual. Just a few. This is barely scratching the surface. If you've never read the book, The Case for the Resurrection by Lee Strobel, I highly recommend it. It covers in significant detail many reasons that the resurrection should be uh, accepted as historical fact. The evidence is immense. The evidence is compelling. And if you're here today and you're among that 14% that's not sure, or if you're among that 20% that you're pretty convinced it didn't happen, I challenge you today, you need to commit yourself to investigate further. Because if what 66% of your fellow citizens believe is true, it is the most important thing in life for you to come to see that.
Belief in the resurrection is reasonable. Belief in the resurrection is factual. And belief in the resurrection is central to our faith. It is central to Christianity. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul refers to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as being of first importance. First importance. It's the event upon which the entire faith rests. It is the message of the Christian church. It is the basis upon which we can even approach God. It is the basis upon which we can receive salvation. Along with the resurrection being central, we have to understand, Christians, that the resurrection is indispensable to our faith. There are voices within Christianity today who claim that it does not really matter whether Christ factually rose from the dead or not, that we can still benefit from the story whether or not it's true, that we can still find some meaning for our lives in this beautiful story of sacrifice, whether it is true or not. The Apostle Paul would say to such folks, nonsense. Nonsense. Here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied above all men. In the section of 1 Corinthians where he says that, Paul is arguing that if Christ isn't risen, then certainly none of us are ever going to rise from the dead. And that if we don't have the hope of resurrection and eternal life, Paul says... Christianity is not worth bothering with. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it's not worth bothering with. If Christ hasn't risen, if we have no hope of resurrection, Paul does not say Christianity would still be a good choice to make. When, when I was a kid, we had a song in uh, some of the churches I was a part of that said, I choose to be a Christian. I choose to be like him. Nobody's making me do it. This is how I choose to live. And one of the lines of the song said, and if it was all just a fairy tale, and there was no heaven, and there was no hell, I'd still be happy living like I live. And Paul would say to that song, nonsense, nonsense. Paul says if it's not true, if Christ has not risen, then we are wasting our lives, Christian, and we are to be pitied above all men. If you look at the world, there are a lot of people who deserve to be pitied because they are in really bad circumstances. But Paul says that if the resurrection is not true, we are to be pitied above all people if we keep living for something that's not actually true. But Paul gave his entire life to this. Why? Because he knew it was true. That's why he gave his whole life to it. We are not wasting our time. We are not to be pitied. 
because Christ has indeed risen from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is reasonable. It is factual. It is central to our faith. It is indispensable to our faith. It either happened or everything we're doing is a waste of time, but it did happen. Jesus rose from the grave. He is alive today. It is the most important thing that has ever happened in all of history. And it is the event that you have to wrestle with and you have to make a decision about. And that is the most important decision you ever make in your life. Let me share for the next few minutes why Jesus died and rose again and what that means for each of us. And I want to make this really personal today, what that means for you. Here's what Philippians 2, 6 through 11 tell us. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The first reason that Jesus died, and this text lets us know this, the reason he died and subsequently rose from the dead is for the glory of of God. The death and resurrection of Jesus is meant to cause men and women, boys and girls, to give God the glory for who he is and what he has done. So Jesus died and rose again for the glory of God, and you need to know that God cares very much about his glory. He's a jealous God. He is worthy of our praise. He deserves our praise. He cares about his glory. But I've titled today's message, Jesus, the Resurrection, and You. Because not only did Jesus die for his own glory, not only did he die for the glory of the Father, but Jesus died and he rose again for you. He did it. For you. Romans 4.25 says this. He was delivered over to death for our sins. Just read that word for because of. He was delivered over to death because of our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification. Because of our justification. He died a bloody death on a Roman cross for us. To pay the penalty for our sins. And he rose to life again because his death secured our justification before God. Now, we're going to look at this passage again in a few minutes. But for now, the point I want us to take from this is that Jesus died and rose again, yes, for the glory of God, but he also died and he rose again for us. He died and he rose again for you because God loves us. God loves you. There's this better song that we sang when I was a kid. 
that said this, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. And that's true. Jesus died and he rose again for you. And because he did it for you, I want to share in these next few moments, it's not going to be very long at all, four things that the resurrection means for each and every one of us here today. Four things that the resurrection means for you personally. And here's the first one. I've already said it. It bears saying again. The resurrection of Jesus means God loves you. The most famous verse in the entire Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now listen, we are completely faithful to this text if we understand it this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to rise, I'm sorry, to die for our sins and to rise again for our justification that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's what he gave his son to do. That is what he gave his son to do. And I think it's helpful sometimes for us to personalize the text even further. And we can, we can hear it this way. For God so loved me that he gave his one and only son to die for my sins and to rise for my justification so that if I believe in him, I won't perish but have eternal life. Everything we read about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, the unjust trials he went through, the brutal beatings he endured, the, the crown of thorns pressed down upon his head, his bloody death on the cross, and his victorious resurrection. He did every bit of that for you because God loves you. And here's a point that I think is really um, important for us to understand. I, I think that sometimes we think that like God the Father made Jesus do this. He, he, like, like, he, like, like okay, he, he has to do it. But that's not the way this went at all. What happened to Jesus on the cross did not happen to him against his will. John tells us this in John chapter 10. These are words of Jesus. He says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my own life only to take it up again. Listen to this. I love this. Jesus says, no one takes it from me. You got that? Nobody's going to take my life from me. But I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. Did you get that? No one takes my life from me, Jesus says. It's true that the Roman soldiers nailed him to the cross. It's true they were strong men, but they only did it with his permission. 
They had no ability to take his life if he wasn't willing for it to be taken. Jesus laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us. I've said before, and I, I hope that this won't disappoint you, but the number of people that I will willingly die for is very few. And all of them have the last name Bird. I love all of you here today. I wouldn't willingly die for any of you. But I love you. Just not enough to die for you. You know the story I told last week, those of you who were here, of Peter being told he was going to have to die a martyr's death, and he was like, hey, what about John? That's me. <laughs> hey, God, what about the rest of these people? Could they, could they go first? <laughs> but I love you. Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. He willingly laid down his life for you. It wasn't like just, hey, he was trying to help you and all of a sudden, like, like things just spun out of control and he ended up dying. No, he made a decision. He laid, he chose, he laid down his life for you because he loves you, because God loves you. And then Jesus picked up his life again. He's picked it up again. Why? Because he loves you. Because the Father loves you. Through both his death and his resurrection, Jesus says to you, no matter what you've done, no, no matter how deep in sin you've gone, no matter how many times you've said, God, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, and then you do it again, through his death and resurrection, Jesus says to you, I love you. Christ's resurrection means that God loves you. And Christ's resurrection means that the penalty for your sins has been paid in full. Romans 4.25 again, he was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. Again, I think it's helpful to personalize these texts sometimes. He was delivered over to death for my sins. He was raised to life for my justification. You know, we often look at the wrong things that we do, the lying, the cheating, the gossiping, the sexual immorality, the pride. We look at these things as, you know, not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. I mean, God's been watching humans for a long time. He knows we've all been doing this stuff as long as we've been on this earth. And it's really easy for us to act and think that it's not that big of a deal. But friends, when you understand the Bible's view of this, you come to understand that these things are an affront to God. They are an assault on the holiness of God. They are rebellion against the rightful rule of God, uh, the rightful rule of God over our lives. What we do when we sin when we do those kind of things I just listed and more, what we do in reality is we remove God from the throne of our lives and we ascend to the throne of our lives, which is God's rightful place. And this is such a treacherous thing that we do that the Bible lets us know clearly 
that when we do this, we earn death for ourselves. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. The Bible gives us this bad news. It's really clear about this news, actually. But then the Bible doesn't leave us with just the bad news. It assures us that while the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What Romans 4.25 tells us is how that happens. Jesus died for our sins. He died in our place. He died to pay the penalty that we owed, the debt that we had incurred. And he did. He fully paid it. Not just for me, not just for you, but he paid it for everyone in the entire world. And because he fully paid the debt, satisfied the penalty for all mankind, death had no more claim on him. And so he picked his life back up. He raised to life, proving that since penalty was fully paid for all people at all times who would simply believe in him. The resurrection of Jesus assures us that our penalty has been fully paid. Jesus did this for you because God loves you. Christ's resurrection means God loves you. It means the penalty for your sin has been paid in full. And here's the really good news. It means that Jesus was just the first of many who will be resurrected. In fact, everyone who dies believing in Jesus, everyone who dies in Christ, every believer who dies before Christ returns will rise from the dead when Jesus returns. And here's what this means. It means that the resurrection of Jesus is not just about the resurrection of Jesus, it is about your resurrection. It's about your resurrection. Say, Brian, that sounds a little too, too man-centered. Sounds a little too, too selfishly centered. Well, let me show you that it's biblically accurate. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Christ is the first of many who are going to be resurrected from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus isn't just about the resurrection of Jesus. It is about your resurrection. It is about my resurrection. He did not just rise from the dead to prove how powerful he is, though the resurrection does show us that. He rose from the dead as the first of many who will rise from the dead because he defeated death for us. He blazed the trail that we will all eventually follow. 
Colossians 1.18 describes it this way, He, Christ, is the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. He's the first. He's not the only. There will be more who are going to be born from among the dead, but He has the supremacy. He gets the glory because He's the one who secured victory over death. Christ's resurrection means that God loves you. It means that the penalty for your sins has been paid in full. It means that Jesus is the first of many who will be resurrected. And Christ's resurrection is an invitation to receive eternal life. Romans 10.9 says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is how we receive everything that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus secured for us. This is how we become beneficiaries of Christ's payment for the sins of everybody who has ever lived. This is how we become one of the many who will be resurrected when Christ returns. Here's how we receive eternal life. We declare that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts what is true, that God has raised him from the dead. Essentially, Paul tells us that if we will just believe what is objectively true about Jesus, and if we will believe it enough to receive Christ as our Savior and Lord, then we will be saved. The resurrection is an invitation to eternal life. Now, as I said at the outset of the message today, Many of us, I would say most of us here today, have responded to that invitation. And that's why Easter Sunday every year is a celebration for us. We're rejoicing in the reality of eternal life. We're giving Jesus the praise and the glory and the honor that he's due for who he is and what he's done for us. But some have not responded to that invitation. Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection, has secured eternal life for every single person. But we've not all accepted his invitation. We've not all accepted the gift that he has purchased for us. And friends, the Bible is very clear about this. It's very clear. The invitation, the gift, must be accepted. It has to be accepted. What's holding you back? If you're here today and you've not accepted Christ's gift of eternal life, what is holding you back? Is it a favorite sin? Is it peer pressure? Is it bad experiences with Christians? What's holding you back? And let me respectfully say that whatever it is, none of those things, nothing, is worth missing out on eternal life. Look, I used to argue that Christians don't behave as badly as everybody says, but I've been persuaded. <laughs> I, I, I think we behave very badly. And so I acknowledge that to you. If you're here today and, and you know, Christians that haven't represented Christ correctly have become an obstacle to you, I, I understand. I... I, uh, I I really do feel that pain for you, and I am sorry about that. 
But don't let bad Christians keep you from Jesus. Don't let bad Christians cost you eternal life. They're not worth that. Don't let them do that to you. Nothing is worth missing out on eternal life. And so for those of you today who haven't, but maybe you'd be interested in considering Christ's invitation today, I want to share four simple words as we wrap this up that guide us in accepting Christ's gift and accepting his invitation to eternal life. Those words are admit, believe, ask, and receive. And so if you're considering responding to Christ today, the Bible tells us that we need, you need, to admit what's true about yourself. That God's not been first place in your life. That you've occupied the throne of your life even though it rightfully belongs to God. The Bible calls that sin. And so what we have to admit is that we're sinners. You have to admit that you're a sinner. And coming to understand that, you have to come to the place where you admit that you need a Savior. John 1 John 1 9 says this, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You just admit that you've been wrong, that you really have earned the wages of sin and that you need a Savior to rescue you. Once you've admitted what's true about yourself, then you just need to believe what is true about Jesus. That he died to pay for your sins. And that he rose again. And he's alive today. You, you have to come to the place where you see Jesus for who he really is. You believe he is who the Bible says he is. You come to believe in him. Again, Romans 10.9 tells us that we have to believe that God raised him from the dead. John 3.16 says, whoever believes in Jesus will receive eternal life. So once you've admitted what's true about yourself, once you've believed what is true about Jesus, then we ask Jesus to come into our lives and to be our Savior and Lord. We ask him to save us. We, we believe he is the Savior and now we say, make this personal, be my Savior, save me, I accept the gift that you have offered me. John 1, 12 and 13 says, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In Romans 10, 13, one of the most encouraging passages in the Bible makes it very simple. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And really, it's that simple. If you come to believe what's true about him enough that you just cry out to him, God, save me, he will. He'll save you. And then when you've admitted what is true about you, believed what is true about Jesus, ask him to be your Savior and Lord, then you simply receive the gift that he's offered. You receive eternal life by faith. You let go of the false idea that you can merit anything with God. 
that you can earn your own salvation by being just a little bit better person than you are a bad person. And you simply rest in the knowledge that you have received eternal life from the hand of Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say it this way, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You can't earn your way with God. Listen, you cannot work yourself out of the debt that you're in with God. You just can't. You just have to accept his gift. You simply say yes. Simply say yes to the gift made available through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Those of us who have responded to this invitation, we are rejoicing today. And we want everyone to receive the eternal life that Jesus has purchased for them. We want everyone here today today to be able to rejoice in eternal life. If you have not done so previously, let me just respectfully suggest that Easter Sunday, 2022, would be a wonderful time for you to finally say yes to Jesus. It is my hope, it is my prayer, it's the prayer of the members of this congregation that somebody here today or several somebodies here today will do exactly that. Why don't you stand? 